you know, people's performance just decrease, decrease, decrease over the course of their life and they don't recognize it. Everybody does worse on less sleep. Every single person on the planet. Hi folks, this is Mark Devine with the Unbeatable Mind Podcast. Thanks for joining me today. Welcome back. Super stoked to have you. And as you know, I don't take it for granted because your time is valuable, so I won't waste it. My guest today is Doc Parsley, Navy SEAL sleep expert, good friend of mine. Before I introduce him a little bit more uh, deeply or just bring him on, um, I just wanted to say we, we just finished up our 54th SEAL Fit Kokoro event wow. this past weekend. Isn't that amazing? 54. <laughs> I know. Does that and make you feel um, really good or does that make you feel really old? I was just going to say, it makes me feel kind of old. And it's the first event in like three years that I, I led and I was I attended the whole thing and I coached the, the, a good chunk of it. Wow. Uh, what a cool experience, man. The, the people who are showing up. You know, this is part of Kirk. You, you get this like, we're now, what, since 2007. So do the math. We're 12 years into it. Yeah. And we, you know, in the early years, people would just show up and they'd fail. And now, you know, the word is out. And so where people are training, have been training really, really hard for these events, sometimes for over a year. And so the quality of the candidates is, is unbelievable. Just, just like buds and, itself, right? It's just like, yeah, totally. Like just the evolution going up. Yeah. Yeah. The quality keeps going up. The quality of the instruction, we can push harder, but also train better. Um, my instructor staff, like w- one of my friends who was my platoon chief at SEAL Team 3, Mark Crampton has joined the team. Now he is retired. His job post retirement as a contractor was to lead the instructor training at Buds. Wow. So we've got that level of nice. quality. Yeah. Yeah. So we had and and we had very little attrition. I mean, we'd been, you know, in the past. And, you know, and so are you still you know, training quite a few guys that are you know coming to you with the intent of preparing for Buds? Yeah. I mean, statistically, it's less so because we have a larger audience of civilians. Yeah. Um, but I think this class we had like three or four. And, and do, you, three. do you have, do you have yeah. like stats on the success rates of people who go through your course? Is like, yeah, I'll crush I mean, it or. The anecdotal stat is they crush it 90%. That's what we've been saying. Yeah. And because um, and, and, there's no way for us to really get those numbers. Right. But also, um, every time I, you know, speak to a SEAL fit graduate and I say, hey, you know, what were the, what was it like? You know, who, how many people graduated and how many did SEAL fit? Generally, we're seeing that about a third of the graduating classes have all trained with SEAL fit or been to one of the SEAL fit events. Wow. That's pretty cool. A third. Yeah. Yeah. That's got to be the, so that's, that's got to be like the biggest uniting factor of I mean, other than te- other than them being Texans, that was pr- that's probably a third. <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> apart from that, it's like <laughs> Texans always make it. Yeah. It's because it's of the football out here. It's like Buds is easy compared to Texas football. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Hey, uh, and I met a guy yesterday. This is really related, but interesting. Related to this idea that we've been running Kokoro and having some success at the the seals are actually um, Mike Megziano. Do you know Megs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Entire yeah. yeah. Force Master yep. Chief. He's now the um, the mentor and mental toughness coach at Buds. So we've been in an ongoing dialogue. He, along with Captain Schultz, who runs the Human Performance Program, about um, you know integrating the some of the tools that we use 
that turn kind of those big four skills into practices. Yeah, I, I heard Schultz is heading that up. Is he, is he heading that from like SOCOM level or WARCOM level or? It's actually BUDS. But, so oh, it's at the at BUDS level. The, okay. At the BUDS command. Okay. And then I had a conversation yesterday with Master Chief Butts. Do you know Steve Butts? Steve Butts. Yeah. I hadn't met him, but he's up at... Um, I know who he is. I Like, he's not... I, I've never hung out with him or anything. So, apparently, you know, the quality of the sailors coming in are, you know, good guys, but they're not tough. And I, I think they referenced the... Um, there was a, a an attack on the USS Maze or something like that where the... Um, the sailors froze up and they wouldn't man their battle stations and it freaked the Navy out, rightly so. And so now, and so they brought him in to try to figure out how to teach or how to you know, develop mental toughness in the recruits at the recruiting command. And um, he's getting ready to retire. So we're in a conversation about maybe trying to figure out how to toughen up the Navy per se in, you know, in the broader sense. So yeah, a lot of interesting we haven't even managed that in our little community, man. <laughs> I know. That's well, it's a cultural thing. I mean, yeah. it's, it's just the whole generation that's grown up. Yeah. Uh, I mean, a different, a different way than you and I grew yeah. up. Yeah. So they're showing up and they're not able to perform. And, it, and they, and they did, and they look different and they, you know, just, just the general population, you know, like I, I don't, I mean, when, when I go down to the, the river walk down here, or if I like get out on the water out here, it's just, you know, the, the like, I like I'm more muscular and more ripped than like most of the 25 year olds I see out there, like, like more than 90% of them. And I, you know, by seal standards, by my standards, I'm like fat, old and out of shape, you know, like I'm nothing like I was at 25 <laughs> and I'm looking at these guys going, man, like, yeah. how do you, like, how do you guys get girls? I mean, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe they don't. I, I mean, it's probably too damn dangerous to get girls anymore. Like, you know, it's all, all that whole, we won't get into that. <laughs> yeah. No, not yet. Maybe, maybe later. Yeah. At any rate. So yeah, Kokoro camp is amazing and we're still cranking them out. We've got one, one more in um, this year. So that'll be October 19th and then we'll run three next year. Wow. March, July and October. And how long do those run for? 50 hours. 50 hours. So they go... Yeah, and the idea is to to it's not Hell Week, right? We're very clear. We're not trying to create seals, but right. seals who have um, have come back after Hell Week and visited, after, you know, the Kokoro grads who go to then and the seals, they come back and say, you know what, Hell Week was actually easy for me compared to the other kids because Kokoro gave me a complete snapshot and confidence to know what I was facing. And the first, you know, this curve, the first fifty hours are the hardest, and that's when most people quit. Yeah, if you make it through the first two and a half, three days, then you're, you're good to go pretty much. And, and for me, like when I, like when I went through buds and, uh, I, I mean, I've, I've caught a lot of shit for saying this, but if the God's <laughs> honest truth, the easiest week for me and buds was hell week because you can't fail out of hell week. Right. I mean, you can, but you have to like, you have to essentially just quit. Right. But every other day of buds, you there's quit or get or break your leg. Right, right. You have to get you have to get injured or get sipe or like you, like you some like something has to happen to you. I mean, it, your performance would have to be so obviously sandbagged, you know. To, I think to get dropped right. out of that. But for me, like the anxiety of buds was never quitting. Like I was never going to quit. I knew that. Like going in, and I know a lot of people think that, and then they you know they eat their words. But 
So I was like, no, I will definitely die here before I quit. And uh, Hell Week was like, all I have to do is not quit. And that, was, that wasn't even an option. So like, this is makes it this easier. Is easier. <laughs> all I got to do is keep going. Whereas like, I mean, you know, the rest of Bud is like, like every other day, there's some sort of test that you could it's fail like and, then they, and then you're done. <laughs> like, I mean, you remember the, and back in that day, like they didn't have this retread program nearly well, you know, oiled like they did, yeah. like they do now. And, yeah. and you didn't get multiple attempts. And I remember like the, yeah. one of the first, well, the first couple of weeks of Bud, maybe the first week they do the, the 50 minute, the 50 meter where you jump off the side of the pool and you have to do a flip and then. No matter how you land, you you just like totally belly flop it. It doesn't matter. However you land, you can't come up again. You go to the other side of the pool and you come back. And if you come mm-hmm. up, you quit. And if you pass out, you fail. <laughs> it's like that kind of sucks. <laughs> like, I mean, that's a that's some pretty bad odds there. And and uh, I was shocked. Like we, I think we lost like twenty guys or something that on that day. Mm-hmm. And like in our very first conditioning run, we lost like fifteen people. I'm like. Jesus, this is going to go quick, man. Um. <laughs> it does go quick. You know, they still do that, of course. And I was talking to uh, one of our coaches, Mark James. He's still at Buds and, you know, he does all the water evolutions. He's a master swimmer. He said that um, now that with the risk management, they have the coaches basically trail them in the underwater swim and the coaches have fins on and then they hover above them on the second half. And right at the end, as they touch the wall, they put their arms under them and they haul them out of the pool. They never did that for us, nah. but they haul them out of the pool and then they got to stand over them and, you know, make sure they're breathing. And it's just really right. interesting. Well, but anyway, it's all good, you know, cause they've had some shallow water blockout deaths. Yeah. So obviously well, and they had that one guy that, um, that one guy who died, at, I think, was it during pool comp, like the water, the tank tread or something. I remember that was just a few years after I got out and there was like all this controversy about how the instructor had uh, like not followed procedures and giving this guy a training timeout or like something like that. And they were trying like, they were trying to prosecute an instructor for having killed this guy essentially. And wow. uh, I don't remember there's some newspaper called me i don't know why me but somehow got my name and they called me and asked me a bunch of questions about it like i'm like i don't know the specifics about it but i would be exceedingly surprised if he faced anything different than anybody else who's gone through that training and he you know there's an unfortunate second if you look at you look at how dangerous what we do is i mean even in training look at how dangerous that is and how few people actually die or get seriously injured like it's a pretty damn safe thing but you're you're gonna lose people i mean that's life right yeah well you are an um you're you're a medical doctor and a navy seal so we you know we could talk seal stuff all day long and i'm sure we will continue to do that but um how did you come around to first becoming a doctor and then getting interested in sleep because that's become kind of your special yeah well, when I was You're known as the sleep, pilot. yeah. Well, when I was when I was a three year old child, I saw a dead squirrel, <laughs> and it just made me wonder. <laughs> so, so you thought it was sleeping, but no, it wasn't. So uh, I, I I say that like I haven't thought of that in so long. Um, but uh, when when I was applying to medical school, you know, you have all these books like to you know try to teach you how to 
you know, do your application right and you have to write essays to get in and all the stuff. And they all start off with this cheesy, like when I was a small child, I was so intrigued by, you know, biological differences or blah, 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 or like I saw a dead squirrel or whatever. And so I started mine out with, um, when I was a kid, I wanted to be the Marlboro man. <laughs> it's like, I grew up in a redneck blue collar family, <laughs> like book learning was for sissies. Like, yeah, you know, like totally different. And every place I interviewed at, they were like, this is the best essay we've ever read. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> I was like, perfect. I, I mean, it's, it's, really surprising to me and anyone who grew up with me that I'm a doctor. Uh, like I, I, <laughs> I started getting, I, I started getting D's and F's in like third grade. Like I was a terrible student my whole life, uh, dropped out of high school. I have like a, you know, like a 10th grade education, uh, got my mom to sign for me to join at 17. And I wanted to go be a SEAL. Um, I was, I was a pretty good athlete. I don't know if I would have, for sure gotten a D one scholarship, but I was kind of like in the running. I was like, I was, in, you know, I was, I was, I was in the running with like my buddies, the guys that I was on par with a lot of those guys got scholarships. So, I mean, what, what sports did you play? What was it? What was your, um, my, my main sport was football because it's Texas. And so yeah, in Texas, you know, there's football and then there's everything else is kind of questionable homosexual activity unless <laughs> unless it makes you better at football so you can run track and you can lift weights um but so um i i did football i i uh i ran track i was actually um i was actually the fastest white boy in in texas for like two years in a row in the 200 meters like that was my distance um i was a pretty good shot putter not not a great discus thrower um and i actually started powerlifting in high school because one of my football coaches was a former powerlifter and he saw some potential in me and he and he coached mm -hmm. me so um that, that was my main stuff and then of course i did you know a bunch of martial arts i did boxing and taekwondo and some judo and mm -hmm. some stuff like that but, yeah but it was it was football and uh you know, by the time, like, and, you know, in Texas, it's just as bad as all the movies make it look, you know, it's like when, when, when you're, when you're a pretty good player, the coaches go around and talk to your teachers and they're like, well, you know, could he do an extra credit project? And that, that, that. And so like, <laughs> so during the football season, I had good enough grades to play football. And then as soon as football was over, like, it's like failing every class for the rest of the year. So <laughs> by the time I finished four years of high school, I had enough credits to be in, uh, you know, a sophomore. So, um, so, uh, I, you know, I, I thought I was pretty dumb actually. Like, you know, I'd, I'd plenty of people and plenty of evidence to support that. I wasn't a very smart guy and academics probably wasn't my path anyway. So, um, I wanted to go do the toughest thing I could do. Uh, I wasn't going to get into college cause my grades were too bad. So yeah, I don't know if you remember this, but the, the, uh, the talk like a uh, journal, what do they call them? Uh, journalism, uh, like 60 minutes, whatever those things are called. It's mm -hmm. long form journalism kind of reporter things, mm -hmm. uh, investigative journalism. Um, mm -hmm. and they did a documentary on buds and it was in the, it wasn't 60 minutes. It was an organization called 48 hours, which was very similar mm -hmm. in format to 60 minutes. And I saw that video and I watched it probably 20 times in a row 
Um, and I was like, that's what I'm going to do. Like those dudes are badasses. And I don't know if you know Crimmins, but Crimmins was kind of like the, <clears throat> he's kind of like the yeah. star of it. He was, he was like the stud of his class. Mm-hmm. And I ended up doing Crimmins retirement physical. <laughs> like when he was getting on, I was like full circle, man. I remember you. Man. <laughs> like cool. full circle, man. It was amazing. But, um, yeah, so I, I just wanted to go do this really tough training and I, and, um, like, I didn't even know that they were going to pay me to do it. I just thought that, <laughs> that was yeah, I mean, it, like my, my dive motivators in Chicago, uh, a guy named Winkler is a Vietnam era guy and he took a liking to me and I got to hang out with those guys a lot during boot camp. Mm-hmm. And he said something about dive pay or hazard duty pay or something. And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. And, and, and he asked me a bunch of questions and it becomes clear that I didn't know I was going to get paid to be in the Navy. Like it never occurred <laughs> to me. I just thought like, I'm going to live in the barracks. Yeah, I'm going to live in the barracks. I'm going to eat in the towel. You're going to give me clothes. I'm going to be out training to kill people or I'm going to be out killing people. Like what do I need money for? You know for? what? I, I would still do it without the Yeah. Pay. And so I was like, you know? I, I didn't know I was getting paid. It's like, I just wanted to go through this training. So, uh, that's how I'm, that's how smart and naive I was. So, uh, yeah. So anyway, that I, um, you know, I went through SEAL training and then of, of course, you know, back in that day you had to go through, uh, you had to go through an A school before you could go. And I, and I went to a pretty tough A school, the, um, gunner's mate because it had, like the uh, the electronics component, you know, the the E and E um, that the that all the that all the ETs did, like you know, all the electronic mm-hmm. technicians. You had to go through that school and then gun school, and then you had to learn like gun systems for ships and missile systems and mm-hmm. hydraulics, and right. so it's pretty tough training. And I graduated at the top of my class, and I was like, wow, kind of shocked. And then when I went to Buds. Not that they were super academic, but like, you know, all the tests we took, like I was, you know, always one of the top performers. And so that gave me a little confidence in that world. Uh, but then, you know, I was just, I was in the teams like everybody else. And, you know, when, and, and the Clinton administration, we had a lot of downtime and on deployments. And I, you know, just started reading a lot of books. I was always interested in like nutrition and exercise physiology and things just to make myself a better better athlete, you know, uh, to make myself bigger, better, stronger, faster. And I met a girl, started getting serious, dating with this girl who is uh, getting her master's degree in, uh, in physical therapy. And so I was reading her textbooks on deployment and I was like, yeah, I'm going to get out and be a physical therapist. And um, mm-hmm. so I started working at San Diego Sports Medicine Center. I started volunteering there because you need a lot of volunteer hours to get into PT school. And mm-hmm. uh and they hired me on pretty quick. And then pretty, this after the Navy. Yeah, this is after I'd gotten out. So, okay. um, and, uh, pretty soon, pretty, pretty early. I was like, hey, I don't really want to be a PT. It was like a little too limited for me, but worked with like, it was a healthcare mecca. We had like every kind of healthcare provider in the world there. And, um, mm-hmm. and the doctor, I, you know, just like took a liking to the doctors. They took a liking to me and they're like, you should go be a medical doctor. I'm laughing going, <laughs> like, if you knew my grades and my, like, there's no way I could get into medical school. And then I got to finish high school. Yeah. First. <laughs> and, and no, yeah. So I was in junior college. I had to do two years of junior college just to be able to get into college. And, uh, right. and so the the head doctor there, a guy named Lee Rice, who still has a practice down in, in San Diego, um, 
he heard me talking to the other doctors and he said, he came out to me and, uh, and he said, well, the question isn't, can you get in? The question is, would you go if you could get in? Mm-hmm. And yeah, that was very like seal kind of question. And I was like, yeah, right. I'm like, well, fuck, of course I would. So he's like, well, then you know what you have to do. And I was like, all right, well, and interestingly, when I got out of the, my first year out of the Navy, I actually joined his concierge practice and I was going to be his successor of his practice, but it, it just wasn't, it didn't fit well with, with what I liked to do at that point. But, um, total aside. Uh, so anyway, I, I, you know, went to UCSD, um, as I was applying to medical schools, you know, this pre-internet, you know, I mean, not pre-internet, but pre really useful internet. And, those Kaplan, <laughs> those Kaplan books that would teach, you know, that you could go through and look at all the different schools and see what their GPAs were and their MCATs and all that. And so as I'm flipping through this book, I find out that the military has its own medical school. And I'm like, crap, I didn't know that. So check into it a little bit more. They'll pay me to go to medical school. And my time from the teams counted towards my pay. And uh, I was like, well, that would be great because that way I can support I was already married. I already had a kid, had another kid on the way. I was like, it'd be really great if I could just support my family and go to medical school. So, and not have a hundred and have no debt coming out. Right. Uh, other, I mean, your debt is just the time working after medical school. You got to give them eight years as a doctor in the Navy, Mm -hmm. but of course you're getting paid for that too. So it's not like you're doing that for free. And, uh, so it was just a great fit for me, and fortunately, I got in, and um, I figured I'd get back to the SEAL teams, and I did. And, you know, I got back to the SEAL teams, and I've my plan was uh, to be an orthopedic surgeon, um, but they always want you to, like, go out and do some operational medicine before you come back and finish residency. And, uh, like dive medical officer stuff. Yeah. So you, you can, if, yeah, you can go dive, you can go DMO and then you can work with the dive community or you can go to flight school and then you can be a flight surgeon or mm-hmm. you can just say, put me on a ship and they'll put mm-hmm. you on a ship. Um, and the, the ship routes the shortest, but obviously the crappiest too. So I wanted to go back to the teams. And so I did that. And when I got there, you know, all, all the team guys would, I mean, you know, the teams like, uh, medical, like the medical community is your enemy, right? So you don't, you don't want to talk to, you don't go. Yeah. You only, yeah. I mean, you talk, you talk to the medic in your platoon, like, you know, he's your doctor, you know, cause you're not going to go tell anybody in a hospital, any real troubles you have, cause they might say you're not qualified anymore or something. So right. everybody hides everything. But, you know, fortunately, because, uh, I had been a SEAL so recently, uh, this is, so this was, uh, well, should I say recently, I guess it wasn't that reason, but so this was like 15 years after I'd got out of the teams, but there were still, you know, two or three dozen guys around that I had either operated with or trained with. So people knew who I was and I had a good reputation. And so they came in and closed the door and said, Hey man, let me tell you what's really going on. And mm-hmm. they had this long list of all these symptoms. Um, and I had no idea. I, I was just like, I don't have a clue. But I did know that. What types of symptoms were the yeah, common themes? Yeah. So, I mean, really, really what it would be most similar to would be uh, like if I told you there is a 65 year old, uh, 40 pound overweight 
man who's been slogging away, like drilling holes in sheet metal for 40 years or, you know, working in a cubicle. And he sits down in front of you and starts telling you his problems. Like that's what they sounded like. Right. And, but of course they're not, they're like jacked and all ripped up. And, but you know, they're, they're talking about how their motivation has gone down. They're talking about how they can't control their body comp very well. Um, you know, as, as just like in the little aside, as part of my questioning, you know, they would, they would mention that they were taking, uh, sleep aids and, uh, mm-hmm. that they weren't sleeping all that great and that their, you know, their mood was kind of really, you know, labile and they couldn't really control their moods and they were snapping at their kids and they were having bad, you know, kind of relationship issues with their wife and they were, they just didn't seem as motivated. They didn't, they weren't as strong. They couldn't push as hard. Their sex drive wasn't really there. They, and mm-hmm. I, you know, and I was like, all right, well, <laughs> let's just do a bunch of labs. Cause I don't, I don't have, I don't have, I don't even have a guess. So let's, let's just study everything. So, um, I just started pulling a bunch of labs and I, and, um, I found like everybody's, and I mean, they looked like they had metabolic syndrome. So their labs looked like the fat 65 year old guy too. Um, mm-hmm. and even if they were in great shape, uh, you know, even if they look like they're in great shape. And, um, so like, again, I was just kind of at a loss. I started looking towards alternative medicine because these guys didn't have disease. Like not a single one of them had a disease that I could say, Oh, this is what it is. Here's the diagnosis and here's the medication you take and here's how we treat it. Like not, not all of them a- apart from the orthopedic stuff, right? Like we know mm-hmm. everybody had that stuff. Um, but this was, this is Oh nine. So the seals had already been, you know, kicking ass for a while and had a pretty good reputation. So I could call like any expert in the world. Like I could, uh, you know, I'd read, I'd read somebody's book or hear them lecture or watch their Ted talk. And I just call them and say, Hey, I'm the doc for the West coast Navy seals. And I'd really like to come train with you or consult with you or learn anything more about what you have to teach. And so I started learning a lot about like, uh, IV nutrition and, uh, IV supplementation and adrenal fatigue, you know, you're trying to treat all that thinking that maybe this is just, you know, what, what they call the combat fatigue in Vietnam and shell shock in in World War II. And I'm thinking, well, maybe Mm -hmm. it's just that. And like, and, um, you know, long about the hundredth guy who came in my office and told me the exact same story as the 99 guys before him, um, kind of a light bulb went off in my head and I'm like, Oh, he takes, he takes Ambien every night. Um, Mm -hmm. and you know, and I'd already been trying to treat people with some, you know, limited success, but nothing, nothing major. And, uh, I thought, well, I wonder how many of the other guys are. So I start going through my records and every single guy who had been in my office was taking sleep drugs. And I thought, well, Occam's razor, right? Like that, that seems, that seems like something worth investigating. And like every other doctor in the world, unless you're a sleep specialist, I didn't know anything about sleep. Like it, I never, I never had a single class on sleep in medical school, not a single test question as far as I know. Uh, and if you look at the medical literature, it's like somebody can't sleep. You teach them a little sleep hygiene. If that doesn't work, you give them a Z drug like Ambien or Linesta, if that doesn't work, you give them a benzodiazepine. If that doesn't work, you give them an antidepressant. If that doesn't work, you give them them antipsychotics and sedatives. And of course, all that's disqualifying. So 
our guys couldn't take it. And so I was like, well, you know, let me start learning about sleep. And as I started learning about sleep and learning, well, Jesus Christ, actually everything, <laughs> everything these guys complaining about, everything these guys are complaining about could be explained by this one thing. It could all be explained by sleep. I, I wasn't convinced that it would be, but like it was the biggest uniner of everything. You could train like a yogi and a spiritual master for 70 or 80 years and get a halo over your head, or you could acquire the halo sport and put the halo on right now. So the Halo Sport is a product developed by Halo Neuroscience, first launched in 2016. Some of you may recall that I've done a, a promotion on this before, and I love the product. It is a neurostim device that stimulates the movement center of your brain, allowing you to learn movements faster, as well as to improve your performance in the movements that you're using when you have the Halo Sport on. It's now trusted by the U.S. military. I know a bunch of SEALs who use it, Olympians, Major League Baseball, the NBA, NFL, NCAA. So elite athletes are using this. I know a bunch of CrossFitters as well. Now, they're launching the Halo Sport 2 in June, and they've taken the technology further. Brand new app. They made it fully wireless. The headphones work beautifully, like almost like a Bose headset. And it's more accessible because the price point is almost about 50% of what the original was. So it's a win-win. And um, I think it's time to go check it out if you want that halo on your head. So go to haloneuro.com. That's H-A-L-O-N-E-U-R-O.com. Use the code DIVINE, D-I-V-I-N-E, to get that additional discount. So using the code DIVINE will give you the halo on your head at a discount. You got to love that. Haloneuro.com, use the code DIVINE, and we'll see you on the training floor. Booyah. But let, me, let me ask about the Ambien. So they're not getting sleep. Was it the lack of sleep or was it the Ambien itself causing the problems? Or was it kind of a Well, it's really the same thing. So when you take Ambien, when you take sleep drugs, you don't actually sleep. You just go unconscious. It's knocks you out. Right. right? So okay. the normal steps, you know, the normal physiology that changes in your brain and your body while you're asleep that repairs your body and repairs your brain and gets you ready for tomorrow – that stuff doesn't happen when you use sleep drugs. It doesn't matter if you're talking about over-the-counter stuff or you're using alcohol as a sleep drug or using actual pharmacological sleep aids. It, it interferes with what's actually going on when you sleep. And when you do a sleep study on people, you can tell that, you know, you can usually tell like what like kind of what category of drug they're using because you like we know it disrupts this this part of sleep and this drug tends to disrupt that part of sleep and you know the research uh shows that so uh there's something that's been pretty well known for a while is um first responders like firefighters and law enforcement and all, and paramedics and all that, all that type of jazz and even like ER doctors. And, um, those, those people who do shift work and, and they do it consistently through their career, they die on average, like 16 years earlier than the average American. Really? Whoa. And the world health organization has classified shift work as a type two, a carcinogen. So the same, the same thing that cigarettes got classified as, and, uh, then some research came out 
and and this is uh, the pharmaceutical industry is going crazy about this right now. The research probably came out five or six years ago, but it's really killing their sleep drug market. And what they found is that if you take sleep drugs chronically, and in medicine that only means six months. Uh, so if you if you're using sleep drugs on a nightly or nearly nightly basis for six months, you have that same death rate as the shift workers. And so my philosophy or you know, my hypothesis on that is that it's just the same thing, right? You're just, they're, they're not getting sleep. They're, they're taking sleep drugs chronically because they can't sleep. And then they're taking a sleep drug and they feel like they're sleeping, but they're not sleeping. And so they have mm-hmm. the exact same problems as people who don't sleep enough or don't sleep well, or don't sleep, you know, aligned with their circadian rhythm. So anyway, back to the story, I, I started learning this stuff and, you know, being a doctor, like from what I had learned or wanting to fix things, I could see that all of their anabolic hormones were really low and all of their inflammatory and catabolic pathways were really high and their insulin sensitivity was really low. And like there was, I mean, there were nearly like metabolic syndrome um, and some of them probably would have classified as metabolic syndrome. And so I wanted to fix their hormones, but Explain, hang on, explain what metabolic so syndrome is. Metabolic right? syndrome. Those, those of us who don't. Yeah, know yeah. Uh, so met, metabolic syndrome is, is really, it, it's really sort of a combination of prediabetes, obesity, and hypercholesterolemia. So like ha- having, having, you know, a higher disease, a higher disease and death risk from pretty much all the major causes because you've mm-hmm. kind of checked up the, all the bad boxes, right? It's like, mm-hmm. you know, it's like you're, you're not, you're, you're not managing your nutrition well. Like your body's not handling nutrition well because your insulin sensitivity, sensitivity sucks. Mm-hmm. You're obese for a uh, myriad of reasons. And now you have high cholesterol and you have high inflammatory markers, which is a recipe for atherosclerosis, mm-hmm. which leads to heart attack, stroke, and, you know, and one of the things that we do know about cancer risk is that almost all cancers uh, proliferate better in high sugar environments. So if you have if you have bi- you know if you have bad insulin sensitivity, then your blood glucose is higher. So that's a, an independent uh, risk variable for that as well. So they're they're essentially just 20, 20 to thirty years older than what they actually were metabolically. Mm-hmm. Um, uh-huh. And, and, and it didn't reflect, I mean, this was after, you know, kind of the Rob Wolf sensation with his podcast and the paleo diet and, you know, guys getting really smart about this. And we, you know, we'd built out that sports medicine facility and we'd hired nutritionists and all this. And so it's not like guys were, you know, just going out to Danny's and eating burgers and drinking beer all day. I mean, the, a lot of the guys in my office were really, really dedicated to their nutrition and, and mm-hmm. we're pretty smart about it. So, uh, I, you know, I, I wanted to just go in there and fix their hormones, but you know, the way the military works, like that's, that's just taboo. It's, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's like hormones in sports or something. I, I don't understand the logic exactly, but it's there and mm-hmm. it's just kind of a dogma. It's a prejudice. And so I wasn't allowed to do any of that. So I had to figure out, well, what can I do? And, and then, you know, the more I learned about sleep and the more I learned about how sleep regulates all of your hormones and regulates all of your physiological functions and pretty much, 
I mean, it may, it's probably not a hundred percent, but it's probably 98.6% of all the repair you do to your body happens while you're asleep. So your body, the whole idea of sleep is to get you ready for tomorrow. But if you don't get enough sleep, you still have to do tomorrow. So then mm-hmm. what do you do? Like, well, they, you know, take, you know, pre-workout jack stuff and coffee and overdrink coffee and energy drinks and, you know, what, like whatever it takes, you know, a ton of guys would, you know, we're getting diagnosed with ADD and, you know, being on Adderall and things like that. Because if you sleep deprive somebody for long enough, they look exactly like somebody with ADD. You can't tell them, you can't tell the difference. Um, mm-hmm. And so it was just like a really unhealthy recipe. And so we had this pre and post retreat where we'd get all the families together and kind of educate the people on, and, you know, here are the struggles you're going to be facing. And, and we, and we try to give them some helpful life advice and we'd bring in a lot of lecturers and all that. And they would bring me into lecture about sleep. And originally it was almost like a sleight of hand. I was just trying to tell guys like, Hey man, your testosterone will go up. Your inflammation will go down. Your pain will go down. Your growth hormone will go up. Your function better. Like, and so it was just a way to talk about hormones uh, sort of under the guise of sleep. But then the more, you know, the more I read, the more I drank the Kool-Aid and now, and now I'm with a hundred percent integrity, I would say that sleep is the most important thing to your health and longevity and overall performance and, uh, and really everything. I mean, there's a reason we use it as an interrogation technique, right? There's a reason we use mm-hmm. it to test it and buds and try to break people down whatever, because nothing breaks you faster than taking sleep away. I mean, you can take food away for a long time. You know, you can obviously, I mean, you look at prisoners, you can take outdoors and exercise away from them and they can go a really long time, but you can't go, you can't go very long without sleep. <laughs> you you, you mm-hmm. break really quickly. So, mm-hmm. so that's how um, that's I ended cool. up being the sleep guy. And when, when I said, well, I think the most important thing is to get everybody off of sleep drugs. I couldn't just like say, quit taking your drugs and suck it up. You know, I had to, I, I had, to, <laughs> I had to do something. So, I just did a ton of research about what are the most common nutritional deficiencies that are associated with poor sleep and what happens when the sun goes down, like what changes in your, in your sort of your serum, like your blood serum, like what changes, what nutritional components are changing and what's sort of going on in your brain, Uh, you know, in a basic chemistry level, I'm not like a, I'm not a neuroscientist or neurophysiologist or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But, um, and I just came up with this, big combination of like 10 supplements (laughs) and the guys would have to go buy them at, you know, three or four different stores and some Mm -hmm. were, some were capsules and some were pills and some were powders and some were liquids. And it was a pain Mm -hmm. in the ass. And it was like 120, 130 bucks a month for them to do it. And they just kept hounding me like make a product out of this, make a product out of this. And, uh, and so finally I did thinking I'll just make like, I'll just, make this product. I'll start up this supplement company. I'll just make this product and then I'll get back right back into clinical work and mm-hmm. figure it would take a year, maybe two, you know, that was five years ago. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that's, I'll come back. That's how I became a sleep your, guy. Yeah. I'll come back to your, your sleep Kool-Aid. Yeah. You drank the Kool-Aid, then you created the Kool-Aid. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 
That's but, what um, I should have called top. it. it was I know you should have called it sleep Kool Aid, man. I, it probably would have been a trademark infraction. Well, actually, <laughs> all the team guys just called it the Doc's cocktail, the or Doc Parsley's cocktail. So when I first yeah. launched it, I launched it as Doc Parsley Sleep Cocktail, which just proves that I know nothing about marketing is like the worst marketing <laughs> name ever. <laughs> and so like every firewall and DOD and DOJ and academia, like all blocked it because it had the word cocktail in it. And half, half the people who heard about it thought it was for alcoholic drinks. And I'm like, all right. So I never said I was smart, dude. <laughs> so, I'm going to put this into my, my rum drink here yeah, and see how it goes. Like, what? like why is everyone asleep at this party? <laughs> There's one this one doctor that I that I knew it, it, just as a personal friend and I told her when I came out with it and I said, Here you should try some and then I saw her like, you know, a month later and I and I was like, Oh, so how you know, how are you liking a sleep cocktail? She's like, It's great. I mix it in my martini every night, it gives it the last <laughs> little apple cinnamon flavor and I was like Oh, okay. <laughs> I probably should have. I probably should have. And said, I'm sleeping like a baby. Yeah, it's like I probably should have said more when I gave it to you. I feel. <laughs> so that's hilarious. Yeah. Right. Well, what are the? I know everyone who's listening is not a sleep expert. What are the top like three to five like hygiene things that that you can do, or what? What were the other things you were telling the seals besides drink this cocktail? You know. Yeah, and, 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 you know, and drinking the cocktails, of course, I mean, I, I still don't consider myself a, a supplement salesman. I'm a doctor, and so, like, I, right. supplements are supplemental by definition. Right. Everything you can fix without it, you know, fix without it. Um, but, you know, I've, I've, done a, I've done private consulting uh, with clients, mostly annual programs, just to kind of get their sort of a life overhaul. Never really thought I should probably send the send those guys to you, you know, to like continue to, the overhaul. To, yeah, to like, hey, let's get you metabolically and physiologically fit enough to go do this, right, and like set that goal. Because right. most of them are entrepreneurs, and they're they're kind of all like they're they're kind of uh, military and special forces hounds, you know. Like they really like to go and compare mm-hmm. their their uh, lingo. Uh, they use more military lingo than me. Let's put it that way. Um, and. Uh, Anyway, uh, you know, when I, I mean, I, I'm obviously I'm best known for sleep, but when I can, when I work with these guys, I work across everything. So I work, with, I work with sleep, nutrition, exercise, and then some sort of mindfulness, and you know, something, something as a stress mitigator. Mm-hmm. And if they're really geeky and they want to do like wearable stuff and collect a bunch of data, it's like we can do some other things like that. But it, it's really lifestyle modification first and then a lot of nutrition, a lot of sleep at the beginning. And then then we'll get into supplements and then we'll get into hormones if we need to. And then last resort sort of at the end of the program, if, if there's something that we just haven't been able to fix and they still need a pharmaceutical, then like that's the last quarter we'd add that. But I can tell you that the toughest thing across everything that I work on guys with is getting them to believe that they should sleep eight hours a night. And once people believe that they don't need much coaching, it's really like, that's the crux. If people, if people will actually value sleep, if they'll do enough reading or listening or understanding to realize that sleep is their most critical component of their health. And then they take Mm -hmm. it serious for a week. It'll, 
like it it sells itself after yeah, that. There's kind of this cultural thing, and we saw it in the seals. It's kind of like macho to think, right? I only need six hours of sleep a night. It's like bull- yeah. bullshit. Yeah, and doctor, you're barely surviving on six hours of sleep a night. Yeah, and the doctors were the same way. You know, it's like when I was in when I was in medical school. You know, you pull call every third night. You're working for essentially like thirty six hours straight, and uh, you know, and obviously the the teams it was like you slept when you could i mean you you might you might get to sleep 10 or 12 hours one night if you want but you might only get a couple hours for three four or five nights in a row and you're and that's Mm -hmm. under bushes and on rocks and stuff you know so um so but once you convince people that it's really valuable then on you know they can get out their computer and go in the google man and and they're gonna be fine like they'll they'll figure it out but i always break sleep hygiene down into it's, it's really simple. It's there, and there's a million little gimmicks. There's a million little products out there. There's a lot of things that I like. There's a lot of things that are useful. And if they work for you, use them. But it's really this simple. When the sun goes down, that's like we evolved on this planet to be asleep when the sun was down and we're awake when the mm-hmm. sun is up. And there's a ton of physiological reasons for that. That Well, there's a ton of physiological things that are happening that we now you know, attribute reasons to, but, um, you know, we, we couldn't have done it the other way. We couldn't have reversed that. So this is the cause of it. And so, you know, really when, and, and this is, this is really recent. So 150 years ago, rural electrification wasn't a deal, right? And most people didn't live in industrialized environments and people still use the sun as their cues and when to go to sleep and when to be awake. And if you look at hunter gatherers that still live today, that have never been exposed to electricity, they do the exact same thing. And what happens is once that blue light goes out of your eyes, a bunch of neurochemical changes happen in your brain over the course of about three hours. And then you feel like going to sleep mm-hmm. and those neurochemical changes. There's a whole chain of them. And one of the end products is something most people have heard of is melatonin, which is a hormone secreted in your brain. And what melatonin, one of the main factors of melon, main functions of melatonin is, is that it decreases your brain sensitivity to stress hormones. And then it also causes the release of, a, of this other neuropeptide called GABA. And what GABA does is it slows down your brain, essentially. It decreases your interaction with your environment. And in fact, mm-hmm. the the medical definition of sleep is 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 really simple. It's, there's a barrier between you and your environment, and you can be awakened. Like, and then I would add to that that you have to have predictable neuropathway, you know, neurobrain waves and uh, mm-hmm. neurological brainwave patterns, because you have that's. And, and I would say that because of the use of sleep aids, um, mm-hmm. because you could you could fit those other two categories, but not really be getting sleep per se. Mm-hmm. It, so the brainwave pattern, I think, is a, is an adjunct. So if you decrease if you decrease the light, the amount of light going into your eyes, then the neurochemical pathways to produce melatonin will happen. Like as long as you're not deficient and so deficient in any of the substrates that you can't make enough melatonin, that'll just happen. It'll happen all by itself. You don't need to do any magic. It's that's all about light. And of course we Mm -hmm. do all sorts of stuff with artificial light that makes that problematic. Um, But the other thing is the GABA pathway. Then the GABA pathway that 
if, if you think of the pictures you see of the human brain, that's the, what we call the neocortex and that's the wrinkly, the big yellowish gray kind of wrinkly bit. And, but you know, that's where our sensory is. That's where we're like smelling and feeling and tasting and, um, and, and all of our motor function. And, you know, so how we're in, how we're interacting with the environment is wrapped up in that. And when we slow that down, then you quit in interacting with your environment as much. So to, your brain isn't as alert because the stress hormones are what make your brain alert. And then you're not interacting with your environment as much. And then you fall asleep. Uh, and, and another sort of normal cue is that your body temperature goes down because the sun goes down. So you drop about one degree body temperature. Um, and that's really all there is to sleep. So sleep hygiene is nothing more than trying to recreate that. Mm-hmm. And like I said, there's a million ways to do that. I mean, there's light bulbs you can put in your house that don't have blue light in them or that change to not have blue lights. So there's things you can put on your computers and your phones now. There's glasses you can wear. You could mm-hmm. turn off the electricity in your house and use candles if you wanted to, like whatever. But like the light problem is this problem. The GABA pathway is all about stimulation. So you can overcome mm-hmm. that GABA pathway and you've probably experienced this. Like you've had days where you're really tired and you just want to go home to sleep. And then, you know, a couple of buddies talk in to go and have a beer and you like have a couple of beers. Now you had a depressant, which should make you more sleepy, but you're wide awake and that you're wide awake because you've overridden, you know, your brain's slowing down and you're interacting with your environment a lot because it's, it's loud and you're talking to people and you're engaged in what they're saying. And you might be checking out, you know, people you find attractive or watching things on the television. And so you can overcome the GABA pathway. So you can't just block all the light in your eyes and sit at your computer and crank and work on, you know, stressful work projects or, you know, go out and do wind sprints and lift weights and all this other stuff. And then expect to be able to just pop into bed because you got the, you, you handled that light bit. So you got to handle that. It's just like decrease the stimulation and decrease the light. And if, if you've ever had kids or if you've ever been a kid, um, you might remember that little, that protracted like hour and a half it takes to get a kid ready for sleep. And then we just abandon that to our peril as adults. We think it's not that important. We don't need to do that, but we do. So you like, you have to start winding your brain down. You have to get the light out of your eyes and then preferably get your body temperature down a little bit with maybe a cold shower, you know, lowering your AC or kind of however you do that. And like I said, ton, tons of different gadgets to help you do that stuff. But that's really all there is to sleep hygiene. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, I have the blue light blocker screen protector on my phone. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and a pair of those yellow glasses. Yep. And they, they seem to help me quite a bit. Um, the role of nutrition. So that's all about stimulation then. So alcohol, you know, anything, coffee too late in the afternoon eating sugary food, that's all going to stimulate you and over, override the GABA? Is that the theory? Uh, well, so one of the things that makes you feel like going to sleep, what we call the sleep pressure. So, you know, that everybody's familiar with it. You know, like we've had, you've had those periods where like you just can't get in your bed fast enough and your head, you know, you're going to fall asleep before your head even is fully rested on your pillow. Like that's maximum mm-hmm. sleep pressure. Like your brain is just shutting down and saying you're going to sleep whether you want to or not. Uh, <laughs> but we have that to some degree every day. And one of the, mm-hmm. one of the reasons we have that is the molecule that we use to provide energy to all of our cells, ATP is what it's called. And you can just consider it like the electricity of every cell in your body. 
Mm-hmm. We're obviously just a combination of cells, right? And we take in we take in nutrients and we excrete waste, right? Well, every cell in your body does that. And so one of kind of the waste products is when you break down ATP, which just means it's an it's a, it's a molecule called adenosine and it has some phosphate molecules attached to it. And if it has three, it's ATP. And if it has two, it's ADP. And one, it's AMP. And then it just becomes adenosine. And adenosine builds up in your brain and actually makes you feel sleepy. It's essentially a waste product and it binds to receptors in your brain and lets your brain know that, hey, there's a lot of adenosine around. We've been doing a lot of work. We've been producing a lot of energy and burning a lot of fuel sources like we need to rest and recuperate and restore. And caffeine blocks those receptors. It competes with adenosine. So Hmm. you still have all that waste product in your brain, but you can block this off. So it will decrease your, it decreases your sleep pressure if you drink it too late. And then another thing that caffeine tends to do is uh, elevate stress hormones. So to elevate your adrenal functions kind of ramps you up. And so it is harder to sleep if you drink caffeine too late in the afternoon. Um, I usually tell people to stop at 10, which means they'll stop by noon. Um, <laughs> and that for most people is okay, but the, there's huge genetic variability as to how quickly people uh, process caffeine. So the half-life can be anywhere from like two hours to 36 hours. So people who really can't mm. tolerate caffeine, that's why like they they don't have the enzymatic capacity in their liver to break down caffeine very well. So a little bit of caffeine goes a long way in them. And then other people mm. like you, you know, the, you've seen the people that can have like a cup of coffee every hour for, you know, for six hours like of the, the day the and they still sleep just fine. <laughs> yeah. The Navy chief coffee guy, right? Yeah. yeah. Interesting. And then the nutrition component is just widely variable. It really matters like how, how metabolically fit you are and how, you know, like how physiologically fit you are. If you, you know, if you're getting close to kind of metabolic syndrome or, or, you know, pre-diabetes or diabetes, those fluctuations in blood glucose and the inflammatory products associated with all that, that will interfere with your sleep um, mm-hmm. and like big drops, like quick, it doesn't, it, it, the overall level of blood glucose doesn't matter, but how quickly it drops matters. And so mm-hmm. having problems, when you have difficulties regulating your blood glucose, that tends to wake you up during the night multiple times and you get a lower mm-hmm. quality of sleep. But if you're metabolically sound, and you're, you know, you're pretty fit and you eat good food and like you're overall healthy. It's like some people, you know, it's just something you have to tinker around with. It's very individualistic. Some people mm-hmm. do better if they have a little bit of carbs, uh, you know, a, you know, like a slow, uh, you know, a slow absorbing carb. Um, if they have that with dinner, they do sleep better. And some people like can't have any carbs later on in the day. And it's just, that's mm-hmm. pretty individualistic. Has there been any um, research linking biome issues with sleep? Oh, yeah, <laughs> on both sides. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, one, one, of the, one of my arguments for saying sleep is the most important part of your health is if you we, – we know that the average person needs about eight hours of sleep a night. And if you give the average person about six hours of sleep a night – so only two hours less than they need, uh, which is, by the way, 
the American average currently, 6.2 hours. A single night of missing two hours of sleep will drop your overall testosterone by 30%. It will drop your overall growth hormone by 30%. It will increase your hunger by roughly 30%. It will drop your insulin sensitivity roughly 30%. It will decrease your executive functioning by roughly 30%. So it's... It's Mm -hmm. kind of, it's completely across the board on everything. And it actually changes the flora of your gut significantly by about 30% um, with a single night of short sleep. And and then if you add all of that stuff together and you, you keep sleeping six hours per night, it gets worse and worse and worse forever. Like people think that they get adjusted to it and like I feel normal now. Well, that's no different than getting drunk, right? You mm-hmm. like you get drunk and like at a certain point of drunkness, you're just like, I'm fine. You know, like that's, <laughs> I'm fine. Like I don't like this alcohol is not really having any effect on me anymore. It's like, no, you're really drunk. And, you know, people's performance just decrease, decrease, decrease over the course of their life. And they don't recognize it mm-hmm. because you lose that awareness. You lose, you, you lose the self-awareness that your performance is decreasing, right? Uh, just like if you don't look at yourself in the mirror and you don't get on a scale and you just judge like what your body looks like by whether or not your clothes fit, like that's, you know, that's putting your head in the mm-hmm. sand and it's, and mm-hmm. you have to have some sort of metric and everybody does worse on less sleep, every single person mm-hmm. on the planet. So, yeah. Wow. I, I was just up for like 50 hours straight over the weekend with Kokoro camp and you know, I'm definitely feeling it yesterday and today, you know, and I actually was taking a nap before this podcast. That's why maybe I sound a little groggy. Well, but <laughs> well, trying to catch more up. power to you, man. Like, yeah, catch. <laughs> no, right. that, that's the. So how quick you got to catch up, right? I you, think I heard you say that. Yeah, you got to catch. Got to catch up. You got to catch up as quickly as you possibly can. It, and, and how and how quickly can you come back into balance? Let's say if you have a long, let's say a seal on deployment, or or an executive is you know in a, a really crunch period and he goes for a month sleeping five hours a night. Right. How quickly can you recover from that? It depends on how well you can prioritize sleep. Mm-hmm. So the sleep debt's real and it's well established. And I'll tell you how, how we've sort of diagnosed it and seen it in the past. But the one thing we don't know is exactly how much sleep debt do you build up and how long mm-hmm. do you carry that? Right. So let's say, you know, you crush yourself in college and then you get a reasonable job where you can get reasonable sleep and you keep doing that for 10 years. Like, have you paid off your, your sleep debt? You know, like, and that's, that's the part we don't know. But what we do know is that when you take people, basically, if you take a random sample of people from any culture, anywhere on the planet that, you know, any Westernized people, I should say, and you put them in a cool, dark room with no stimulus. It's like you have, they've got a bed and a toilet, no lights, and it's cold. And you lock them in there for 14 hours a day. And you let them out for 10 hours a day. And you do that until they're sleeping eight hours a night consistently without any idea of what time it is. So there's no external cues for them to know, you know what, how long they've been asleep or... Uh, what time it is. The average person will sleep about 12 and a half hours the first night. And then it takes mm-hmm. about three to four weeks of sleeping as long as they possibly can, just as long as they want to. 
Um, it takes about three to four weeks for them to get down to the seven and a half hours plus or minus half an hour, which is where that number comes from. And then no matter how long you run it out after that, everybody will sleep seven and a half hours plus or minus half an hour pretty much ad nauseum unless you do like huh. some very super active hard work or whatever. Obviously, you'll need some more sleep to recover. But the, I mean, the fascinating thing about that, if you think about it, and, and this was originally done in World War II, uh, like pill bunkers, and, the, and it was called bunker trials, and they were getting, they took college students during their summer break and did this, and uh, and and it's been done hundreds of times since, and it's and it mm-hmm. always yields the same result. And the remarkable thing about that is to think that if they're sleeping seven and a half hours and they're in a cool dark room with no electricity. And this is obviously way before cell phones or anything like that. So mm-hmm. there's nothing for them to do except lay in bed until the door opens and they get to go out for 10 hours. Um, that means they're laying awake for six and a half hours in a cool, mm-hmm. dark room. Mm-hmm. How many people can do that? If you can't do that, you have a sleep debt most likely. Mm-hmm. So if you can't just say, well, I'm going to sleep as long as it takes, how long does it take to pay you back your sleep debt? Like that's, that's highly variable. Right. And it's like, well, if you can get maybe say if your physiological norm would be seven and a half hours, you'd be like the exact average person. If you slept Mm -hmm. eight and a half hours for six months or nine months or a year, like, like we don't really know that. Like we don't have that Mm -hmm. data, Mm -hmm. but that's, Mm -hmm. that's probably realistic. You know, that it would probably take you, yeah, you know, it would it'd probably take you somewhere around six months to nine months of like <laughs> focusing on your sleep to where you were just going to bed at the same time every night and waking up at the same time every day without, you know, without an alarm clock. Mm-hmm. And that's how you would know that you have no sleep debt. You know, you, sh- you should like do that as an executive retreat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, sleep retreat with Doc Parsley. Yeah, <laughs> come into this bunker. Yep. And just shut the door. That might be the easiest one to run. Ever. Yep. <laughs> just, you don't have to deal with them for fourteen hours, and then just like let them out for ten hours. I'll let you go beat them up on the beach or whatever, and yeah, get them nice exactly. and tired. Give them to me for ten. Yeah. Them to you for the yeah. We'll get a good nutritionist in there to give them some good food, and then throw them back. It's, we got a deal. We got a plan going here. I think I'm so. all on That's it. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, one more thing, because you know a lot of parents out there are dealing with this too, because of all the stimulation these kids are on. And I, I have dealt with this with my son Devin. Like he, you know, sometimes he's up to two o'clock at night mm-hmm. perusing YouTube, and I'm like, right. you know, <laughs> you know, of course he doesn't listen to me because he's 19. Right. What's the issue with kids? They got to be chronically. <laughs> yeah, so it's super unfortunate. There's there's this organization called Start School Later that um, it's a non for profit. They've they've been lobbying. Uh, for national regulation on school start times for probably at least 10 years. I mean, they're they're just up against, you know, an ignorant society that Mm -hmm. isn't willing to, to do what needs to be done. But the, I mean, it's, it's actually, it's actually tremendously sad. I mean, it's, it's devastating what we're doing to our, our kids. We know during adolescence that your circadian rhythm shifts a little, what we call shifts forward. So it, it makes you want to go to sleep about two to three hours later. Mm. And there's nothing, there's nothing an adolescent can do about that. It's not, I mean, it's hormonal. There's nothing they can do to get rid of that. So when we start school at seven o'clock for a kid who 
is you know shifted out three hours, that would be the same as you and I starting work every day at three a.m. and expecting to have the same performance. Like like you and I are going to go to school at three a.m. Like we're going to we're going to go start taking college courses at three a.m. Like how much are we going to learn? The first three or four hours is going to be wasted because it's going to take us that long for our brains to wake up and actually learn something. And this is well documented. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, there's no question about it. So just the school system itself is against the kids. Mm-hmm. But then all this recreational school uh, screen time, which is like cell phones and gaming and computers and television. Obviously, there's the light issue and there are some parents, you know, it's pretty easy to control around that with all the programs around that now. But the problem is it's just really, really, really unpopular to try to limit your kid's screen time. And mm-hmm. this, the statistics... Unpopular with the kids. Yeah, now. yeah. And the statistics yeah. are astounding. This is a... I've seen this in several different studies. I've seen it come up time and time again. The average teenager, adolescent up to uh, college age spends more time on recreational media than they do sleeping. <laughs> and wow. for young men, this is even more important. It's, it's important for both. It's important for young women and young men. But the prefrontal cortex, the, f- the front of our brain that gives us our executive functioning, that makes us the mm-hmm. smartest animal on this planet, that makes us, gives us the ability to plan and predict. Like if I do this, this is... The, the likely consequence would be good or bad. Like if I sleep with my boss's wife, that's probably a bad idea. I don't actually need to do that to know it's a bad idea. It's my Like I have a prefrontal cortex. It's a simulator to allow me to do that. But sleep deprived me enough and I might think that's not such a bad idea. <laughs> but that area of the brain develops later in boys than it does in girls. Uh, and that's, you know, what a lot of the social immaturity that men, you know, the boys get judged with is about. Mm-hmm. And, there, and, and there's, there's advantages to that, to that for certain things because it allows you to take more risk and, t- you know, and obviously mm-hmm. we know that historically men did riskier things like, you know, hunted and did battle with other tribes and all of that type of stuff. So evolutionarily, it makes sense that they would develop later. And you think about the shit we did when we were 18 in the military. Mm -hmm. It's like, I would be smart enough to be really scared of that now. I wasn't like, my brain wasn't developed enough to realize the risk I was taking at that stage (laughs) in my life. Right. So we are actually interfering with the development of the brains of our children, like their executive functioning, their ability to, I mean, and, and you know, the executive functioning is, is exactly what it sounds like. It's what, what would an executive do? Like it's high level decisions, it's problem solving, it's math, it's calculation, it's, pre, you know, it's predicting the future based on past events and all of that mm-hmm. type of stuff. And we're impairing our kids' ability to do that. And we're making college applications exponentially more competitive and, you know, graduate school nearly, nearly mandatory at this stage. And I mean, it's, it's really tragic. I mean, we are doing exactly the opposite of what we should be doing with our kids, just like most Americans do exactly the opposite of what they should do with their kids' nutrition and with mm-hmm. their kids' activities. It's, you know, kids need to go out and play. They need to fall down. They need to trip. They need to try to climb things and fall off. They need to, you know, break a few bones here and there. They need to get dirty. They like, I mean, it's part of the species and we're, you know, we're handicapping them. 
back to the whole reason that our military men and women are not up to par. Yeah. I mean, what, what was it? I heard some statistic recently. I don't know where it came from. Could have been made up, but um, something like 30 or 40% of military age men. So I think it was like 18 to 25 or something like 30, 30 to 40% of American boys like wouldn't even qualify for the military. Like they're right. physically, you know, they're physically unfit. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, that's an astounding statistic because <laughs> really you think about a hundred years ago, it was probably about what? 3% or 5% or something. <laughs> it's like, everyone was qualified. Yeah. Amazing. Wow. Well, we've, we've been chatting for a long time, so we probably should wrap this up. You've got a new uh, version of your uh, cocktail, what you call sleep remedy out. Yeah. And uh, what's new about it and what's different? Well, I mean, it's, it's actually, it's actually only kind of new. Um, it, it's, it's really closer to what I was given the seals than, than what I produced. You know, what, um, you know, one of the, so now people can actually sleep like a Navy SEAL. Exactly. You can sleep the, like a Navy SEAL. Marketing on the bottom sleep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah. So when I originally started producing it, you know, I mean, I, I like I funded this all with just like my money and like a few of my friends chipped in some money and and we just said, yeah, we'll see if this works. And uh, so it, it was prohibitively expensive for me to put everything in there that I was given the seals. Uh, but I came as close as I possibly could. And then there was this other form of GABA that I hadn't that I really didn't know much about and some pharmacists talked to me about that and I said, Oh, okay, well we can try that form of GABA and that was the pH GABA or the Fenbute and, and so we put that in there instead of the regular GABA like I was given the seals. But you know, uh, economy of scale and business. And so we, we sell enough and we produce enough now to where I can actually produce the product that I want and I can use, mm-hmm. I can use better, like higher, higher quality ingredients, um, you know, magnesium that gets into the brain better, um, that crosses mm-hmm. the blood, the blood brain barrier better. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's, uh, the, the one thing that I, and, and then I would, I was also recommending that guys take something called phosphatidylserine, which is, uh, you know, it, it's this supplement that when you take it, it decreases the amount of stress hormones that your body produces. And it works during exercise as well. Like it'll, it'll decrease kind of your stress hormones if you're exercising intensely. So it, it, it helps with that as well. But a lot of reasons people can't sleep well is because they have too many stress hormones. So mm-hmm. the guy, the guys, a few guys were buying that, but that was crazy expensive. It was, I think it was like a hundred dollars for 30 pills back uh, when I first was, when I was first doing that. But the price of that's come down. So I, I got that in the product. Um, I adjusted uh, the dosages of, of several things to be more aligned with what they were back then. And then I added one new ingredient. Um, and it's just because I didn't really have the awareness of it back then, but it's an amino acid called L-theanine. Um, mm-hmm. and it, it essentially works synergistically with the GABA and it, and it increases your brain's response to the GABA. So, mm-hmm. um, and it's a natural, naturally occurring, uh, amino acid. It's just, uh, you know, something we're kind of concentrating in there. So, 100% of the feedback so far has been that the product works much better and uh, 100% of the feedback is that it tastes much better too. So um, some of the ingredients were pretty hard to mask before. Um, so like the better, the higher quality <laughs> the ingredients you use, the less flavoring you need. So, right. Yeah. So that's, I have a question. Cause I, I, I use the product myself. I really enjoy it. And um, so that's why I endorse it and you know, we promote it here, but uh, uh 
Are you supposed to use it every night or just kind of once in a while or just when you're feeling it, extra tired? It, it's to, it's totally up to the individual and it depends on why you're taking it. So, you know, if, I mean, you could, you could essentially use it like, like you would a, a daily multivitamin, right? And it's just like, mm-hmm. well, mm-hmm. you know, I'm more likely to get better sleep <laughs> if I use this every night. And there's nothing in there that builds up over time or causes tolerance or that's going to like, you know, cause any sort of vitamin excess in you or nutrient excess or, mm-hmm. uh, there, there's nothing in there that'll backfire. So it's safe to take mm-hmm. every single day. Okay. And if, and some people just use it like that, it's like an insurance policy and, you know, uh, like a multivitamin and you can use it that way. The, there's also though the people who know that they aren't going to get good sleep. So, Mm-hmm. People that are, you know, first responders or military or, you know, all that kind of jazz, transcontinental pilots, and they just know they're going to have a crappy sleep schedule. They do shift work, whatever. I recommend that all of those people take it all the time. Like you just mm-hmm. take it every night because of those stats I was talking about, like you're going to die 16 years earlier. And if this helps you get like one extra hour of sleep, you know, or, you know, or 30% mm-hmm. higher quality of sleep, it's probably going to have some pretty amazing benefits in the long haul for you. Mm-hmm. Right. And then uh, a lot of business, a lot of my business clients just use it for travel for, uh, you know, jet lag and like to get themselves to be able to sleep on the plane or to get themselves to be able to go to mm-hmm. sleep in a different time zone when they're not really tired. And it, you know, it works great for that as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I take it every night and I've never had any problem sleeping other than I didn't value it. So once I started valuing mm-hmm. sleep, like I've, I've always been able to sleep anywhere. Mm-hmm. And Rob was over at my house in San Diego. Uh, actually, it was still a sleep, sleep cocktail at that point. And he's like, Hey man, are you going to like, we're getting, you know, we're doing a lecture together. And so he's staying at my house and uh, he's like, Hey, are you going to make a sleep cocktail? And I was like, Oh, I'm like, ironically, I'm out of it. You know, like <laughs> I, I own the company, but I always run out of it mm-hmm. just because I always forget to reorder for myself. And uh, he's like, I have an extra one. And I'm like, nah, that's cool. I haven't been using it for like a month. And um, and then he's like, are you sure? And he's waving and like, <laughs> like, like a little drug salesman. I'm like, I'm like, all right, I'll take it. And then I woke up the next morning. I'm like, what the hell was I thinking? Yes, of course I need to take this every night. Like, I, I mean, I just feel way better on it. And if that's your experience, then I say, it's safe enough and it's cheap enough. It, I would do it. And I mean, I just do it every night. Yeah. Any difference between the um, pill format and the, the one you mix with water? Um, the pill, the, the primary reason for the pill format is for the, you know, the lunatic fringe nutritional people who just like, we don't, they don't want any kind of flavoring or they don't want any type of xylitol or, you know, they, they have an objection to an ingredient. I like the tea better, and the reason I made it a tea was two. The primary reasons are twofold, really. So, I want people to engage in some sort of nighttime ritual, and if you mm-hmm. have to like go put a kettle on and boil some water to make like this to make this tea, then you're like you're putting some forethought into getting ready for bed, right? There's something there, mm-hmm. other than just sitting in your bed and popping capsules. Mm-hmm. And it absorbs faster because it's liquid, right? You don't have to break down the, the capsules and then hydrate all the powder and all that stuff in your gut. So the, the onset is faster. We had to play around with a few, a few of the ingredients, um, make some marginal changes in there just to make it 
you know, be able to fit in three pills because you can't really get people to take six pills a night. You know, we had to, we had to make a little exception. And this, and this new, this newest version has, um, the, the capsules have, um, a magnesium called magnesium all three and eight, which is also called magteen, um, which is, uh, you know, the, it's the best, it's, it's the form of magnesium that gets across the blood brain barrier the best. Um, mm -hmm. it was developed at Stanford. It's been shown to like decrease neurological associated or, you know, age associated neurological decline and all sorts of like mm -hmm. great benefits. Um, but that's at twice the dosage of what we're putting in, in there. And so, um, you know, that form of magnesium is, is different between the two products. I will eventually switch the, 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 the T to have the, the mag teen in it as well. But right now mm -hmm. it's just too expensive to do it that way. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. but apart from that, like, I mean, there, there may be like a 10% difference in efficacy and it probably takes, I would take the capsules an hour before bed and I would take the tea like 30 minutes before bed. So okay. that's about it. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, this has been fascinating and thanks for the work you do. And I'll, by the way, I forgot to mention, but for those who want to learn more, uh, you've got a book out called Sleep to win yes we're going to rechange that or change the title to sleep like a navy seal for well actually the sub the subtitle is uh <laughs> the subtitle is, so it's sleep to win and the subtitle i think is um how navy seals and other top performers you know stay on top or something yeah. like that i don't know so, yeah to get that in the yeah we had the, i can't have a seal book without a seal and title of course and, yeah <laughs> <laughs> all right man well i look forward to seeing you um uh, good luck down in the new country of Texas. Yeah. And I, ho I hope, um, home sweet home. I hope, <laughs> <laughs> I hope you let me in when, uh, California, Texas. Yeah. We'll, over. we'll sneak you in. You might have to go through the Panama canal and like come up through the <laughs> Gulf, but like, we'll get, we'll get in here, man. The brotherhood strong sure. here. Right. Who yeah. Thanks for that. All right, brother. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Buddy. All right. Thanks a lot. All right, folks. That was Doc Parsley. You can, um, Check out his website at www.docdocparsleyparsley.com and uh, go order some sleep remedy. If you haven't tried it, uh, trust me on this stuff works and it's critical as you've heard from this podcast to get that seven and a half to eight hours of sleep every night. And if you're in deficit, start making it up by sleeping in on the weekend and taking naps like I did. Um, you can get 10% off if you use the code unbeatablemind. Should be easy to remember. It's the name of this podcast. So go to drparsley.com, check out his book, Sleep Like a Navy SEAL. I mean, Sleep to Win. <laughs> and generally, um, just get on board with the sleep bandwagon. It's really important and pass the word. And on that note, let's check out of here. Stay safe, train hard, and sleep well. Booyah. Goodbye now. Sure you get home, boys. They got your back, the pride of the fleets, the bright swinging frog.